We are continuing this morning through our series called Do Not Be Afraid, looking um, in Luke 1 as to uh, how Jesus shows up on the scene in the form of this angelic announcement to, to Mary and this concept of do not be afraid. And we took the first couple of weeks to look at how in the midst of this, the angel says, do not be afraid, you have found favor with God. And we talked about how sort of the ultimate favor that we have is in Jesus, right? And then we talked last week about how Jesus is Yeshua, the, the, the second Joshua, who leads us into the promised land of full life. And I would encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to listen to those, you can go back and listen to those on our website or on our podcast. Today, uh, we're going to take some time to look at what the angel goes on to say is that Jesus will be called great and the son of the most high or the son of God. And look at why that gives us joy and hope in the midst of a frustrating and ongoing situation that we find ourselves in. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Luke chapter one. I'm going to read this again, like I have been every week for us, just to sort of saturate us in it. Um, Luke says this in chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So like I said, we're going to focus today on, on how the angel tells her he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, or the Son of God. Now, this Son of the Most High, Son of God terminology would have been, Mary would have recognized this, the people of God would have recognized this, and it has gone back all the way to the beginning of time. In the earliest parts of Scripture, we see that Adam is called a son of God. Adam, and Luke even says this later in his genealogy of Jesus, that Adam is a son of God. And then in Exodus 4, God tells Moses to go before Pharaoh and declare that Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go and worship me in the desert. And we see that God is saying, not just Adam, but Israel, the people, is God's Son, the Son of God. And then later we see in 1 Samuel 7 and in Psalm 2 that David, the king, is called the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. And so this language would have been familiar to Mary, 
and familiar to the people of God. And what we see is that, that Adam is the son of God, is this image bearer of God. He bears God's image into creation and is to represent him out into the world. Israel, the son of God, is meant to be the, the people who are the keepers of the Torah, the, the ones who would be obedient to God and be part of the covenant with him and keep the covenant. David, as the son of God, is meant to be a representative of God carrying out God's justice and righteousness as a representative of God to the people and the people to God. And we see this son of God terminology stretch across all of them. But if you have heard anything we've said before, or you know your scriptures, you know that all of those people fail to do what God ultimately calls them to do as sons of God. Adam sins and worships idols and walks away from God. The people of Israel, as the sons of God, walk away and they worship idols. And David has his own faults up and down through his life. We see that they are all imperfect, sinning, failing sons of God. And so as as the people of God fail to keep the covenant, as the kings fail and worship idols for Israel, and they're not being good sons of God, we see that God eventually allows them to go into exile. And they find themselves waiting for hundreds of years for God to fulfill his promises to his firstborn son, Israel, to his people. One of my favorite authors is N.T. Wright, and he says that the people of God, when they're waiting for all of these years, for God to return them from exile, to deal with their sin, to restore them, to redeem them. All this time that they're waiting, he says that they would have understood, what they would have known during that time was the who, the why, and the where of what was going to happen, right? For them, the who was very obvious while they waited. It was that Yahweh was their God. He seemed mysterious, but, but personal in a way, unpredictable, but yet acting in power on their behalf at some point. So for them, the who was settled. God would do something. The why was known to them. Why would he act on their behalf? Why would he restore them from exile? Because he had made a commitment to them. He had made promises to them. He had made a covenant with them that he would restore them and give them the promised land, that he would restore the kingdom to what it should be. So they knew the who and the why, and they knew where. It would revolve around the temple. It would revolve around the promised land of Israel. We can look back on this and see that it's changed, but for them, they knew that God was going to act on their behalf because of the covenant in the promised land centered around the temple and Jerusalem. And so they wait and they wait. But what N.T. Wright goes on to say is that what they didn't understand was how exactly God was going to do this. They didn't understand what exactly he was going to do or when he was going to do it because he was delaying forever, it seemed. They knew that he would intervene, but what was he going to do? How was God going to come and act among his people? When was he going to do this? He'd made all these promises and for hundreds of years, nothing had happened. They hadn't heard from him. And what would he do? What should they be doing in the meantime while they waited? And lots of groups of people thought they had this nailed down. Pharisees rose up, Essenes rose up, uh, Sadducees rose up, and they all thought they had an idea of this is what God's going to do, and here's how we should act in the meantime to get God to do it and act on our behalf. So there's, they understand who, but they don't understand 
how or what or when, and there's all this waiting that has to go on in the midst of struggle and exile. How is God going to come to his people and restore them? And in, in all the, the howing and the waiting and, and, and the, the, the wooding like of the situation, they and we have a tendency to do two things. When we're in struggle and we're waiting and we don't see God acting, we, we have a tendency to do two things, either to do religious things or to do things seeking human power. In, in humanism, we, we strive for power to fix the situation. We try to align ourselves and make ourselves significant by aligning ourselves with certain political parties or um, you know, authority figures where we can get power. We try to get enough wealth that we can have power and to change the situation instead of just waiting. We try to link up with the Caesar of our day. And I've talked about this before, but I think God uses this language and maybe Luke uses this language as well of son of God because Caesar was also called son of God. And we try to line ourselves up with these these ruling powers who look like gods, and we try to align ourselves with them and get human power so that we can change our situation because we're so frustrated from waiting and waiting for God to act and do something. On the other side of things, we'll often do religious things, religious behaviors, where we try to do these good things to manipulate God to get him to act on our behalf. If I just be good enough, if I just do enough churchy things, then maybe God will bless me and he'll change this situation. Maybe God will restore my fortunes. Maybe God will keep bad things away from me. Maybe if I just do enough, God will do something great in my presence. And so the people in Israel's day were doing this, and we have a tendency to do this as well. But instead of religion, instead of humanism and power, what we see Luke say is that in all of this waiting, into the middle of this, after hundreds of years of waiting for God, not knowing what he's going to do or how he's going to do it or when he's going to do it, into this scene comes the gospel. Into this scene comes Jesus, the Son of the Most High, who will be called Great We have the story of Jesus' birth and his life and his death, and we see that the gospel is very different than a quest for human power or of religious manipulation of God. And the how and the what and the when starts to come into focus for Mary and for the people of God. Again, I don't think in any way that anyone could have understood in that moment exactly what God was up to. As much as Mary, I believe, had favor with God and was devoted to God, I don't know that she could fully comprehend what the angel was saying. It's only now with hindsight that we can look back and say, ah, this is what was going on. It took took the first several hundred years of the church for them to even determine, yes, there is such a thing as a trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're all different persons of the same person, different personalities and expressions of the same person. I don't think Mary or even the people of God understood in that moment exactly what it was that God was doing. But the beauty of this is that in the midst of all this religious clutching and manipulation of God and and power grabbing, God in all his greatness shows up in all of his smallness in a way. And his greatness becomes small. God's power is is demonstrated in the incarnation 
of Jesus in sacrificial love. That Jesus is a new son of God, better than Adam. All of Israel as the son of God gets put on Jesus as the son of God. And what we'll talk about next week is that he is a new David as well. The son of God representing God to man and man to God. But all of God's power and greatness and the most highness comes small and tiny in a tucked away stable somewhere. Lowly and humble of heart, Jesus says about himself. God's covenant love comes down to our size rather than crushing us. I'm just thinking about this now that most of the time that God shows up in his greatness and in his highness in scripture, people die (laughs) because he's so powerful. And yet in Jesus, we see that he makes himself small to come into our midst, to dwell among us, to make us, to become like us so that we can become like him. Now in this moment, and even now, not everyone recognizes this about Jesus Not everyone recognizes this about God, that that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Most High, because He doesn't look like He should, right? For a God, He should look great and Most High, and yet He comes small into our midst. And if you look at the people that Jesus interacts with and the stories about Him in the Gospels, we see that the people who actually grasp this about Him are broken people people who can recognize their need physically, spiritually, emotionally. From a religious standpoint, they realize that they need something outside of themselves, and they recognize the greatness and the most highness that is Jesus, but that he's standing in their midst in his meekness and in his gentleness. The broken recognize this about Jesus then and today. And they encounter Jesus and they receive forgiveness for sins and the shalom of God comes into their lives. Religious people who encountered Jesus, the Pharisees or the self-righteous, they they encountered his, his love and his authority and they were threatened because they didn't want to submit to Jesus. They liked that they would try to control God and manipulate God by their religious behavior and they wanted nothing to do with this this meek God who has come into their midst. The religious want nothing to do with Jesus and his lowly self. I found it interesting in in studying this passage and this, this terminology of son of the most high, that the only time you see that in the gospels, do you know who says it? Demons. Demons recognize this in Jesus They encounter him and his gentleness and his lowliness, but they recognize his authority and they say, away from us, son of the most high. We want nothing to do with you. I find it interesting that they can recognize that, but the religious are threatened by it as well in a different way. People wanting Caesar's power of that day, wanting to link up with significance and have power to change the situation, they reject Jesus as well because His meekness isn't attractive, doesn't look like it will change anything. His smallness looks insignificant and unspecial, and they say, actually, we're going to kill you instead. We don't want anything to do with this, because he didn't look like they thought he should. 
He didn't come in riding on a war horse, ready to tear the place up and throw the Romans out. And so the same people that were praising him days earlier then say, you know what, you're not going to do something for us the way we wanted you to? Kill him instead. Again, I would say it's because he was calling them to submission to a sacrificial love and a cruciform life that they just did not want. The broken recognized it and received the shalom of God. The demons recognized it and ran away. The power hungry, the religious said, no thank you. No thank you. We don't want this lowly, meek Jesus. Friends, the the greatness of God, the most highness of Jesus is often subversive and gentle, kind, quiet, slow, sacrificial, yet powerful. This is the beauty of the incarnate God among us, that it is transforming in all of its power. This is the greatness of our God. That, that Jesus comes into our midst and saves us from our idolatry, saves the people of God from their brokenness because he is the true, righteous, most high son of God, fully man, fully God. And he saves us from our sin and our idolatry that, that wrecks us and separates us from God now and forever. And if you read the Gospels, you see that when God comes into the midst of his people, what does he say it looks like? It looks like leaven. This small little agent that gets mixed into this inert lump of of dough and becomes catalytic and, and does something from the inside out and completely changes the makeup of this dough and makes it something amazing. Jesus says that He and the kingdom are like seeds that get planted in the ground, and though they look dead, months later, years later, produce a fruit as they burst up through the ground, small, insignificant, thrown away, yet producing something incredible. Or in this story in Luke 1, we see that often it's the kingdom is like this thing that's being born from within us, small, tucked away, hidden, yet fully alive and becoming something great when it is birthed from us. This is the beauty of our great, most high God coming small into our midst rather than crushing us for not having covenant obedience becomes like us and works like leaven, like seeds, like a baby being birthed from inside of us. This is how the Son of God is at work in you and me right now if we would let him. The greatest, most powerful miracle Jesus is doing right now is saving you and saving me from ourselves. This is how he's dynamically at work in the world. Will you recognize Jesus' authority in this, his greatness in this, his gentle love, yet transforming power to be at work in the world and in us? Listen, In the midst of this past nine, ten months, I have prayed that God would do something great, that God would change this situation, that God would deal with the pandemic, that God would make it go away, 
that he would act in his creative power that he has to just wipe this thing out and get us back to normal, right? I'm not going to say I haven't, but I've also been praising God that in the midst of this, he has been at work in the midst of my heart, in the midst of my family, in the midst of our congregation, in small yet transformative ways. Do you see these things? Do you believe that God actually is doing this and that the greatest thing he can actually do for you in the midst of this is to change you and save you from yourselves, to save me from myself? This is what I've been learning in the midst of this. I recognize that God is walking with me as a friend. Would I love to see him do some great dynamic thing? Sure. Have I really come to cherish the fact that Jesus walks with me as Emmanuel, God with me as a friend? Absolutely. More so than maybe I want him to see, see him do these great big things anymore. So can I ask you a question? This Advent season, are you finding joy and hope in the smallness of God? The greatness of God made small in our midst in Jesus. Emmanuel, walking with us? Are you finding joy and hope in Jesus in the midst of this pandemic, or are you abandoning him? Because he doesn't look like you think he should in the midst of this. Are you trusting in other sources of power, other sons of God like Caesar or a political party to rescue you, to restore you, Or are you finding the rescuing power of Jesus in the midst of this, one area of your life at a time? Are you looking to religion to save you and transform you? Or are you finding Jesus doing this by his spirit, by his word at work in us? Are you maybe doing religious things, subconsciously expecting Jesus to bless you, when really his presence is the full life and blessing like we talked about last week? How might the the gentle, lowly, leaven-like Jesus be at work in your life right now, saving you from yourself? I encourage you to process that in the midst of this season of waiting, rather than looking to the heavens saying, God, do some great thing. Would you take time to be a little bit introspective and say, God, what are you doing in me? How are you at work in me this season? And I think what you'll find is that through the gospel, you are a different person than you were five years ago. And that you do know God better. But would you allow him to keep working on you, keep changing you like that leaven from the inside out, like that seed that's growing from inside you and see the fruit that he is producing? Do we ask him to do these great, powerful things and change the pandemic? Absolutely. But let's take time this Advent season while we're waiting to not rely on human power, not rely on religion, but to see the power and the greatness of God at work in our midst in small and transformative ways. Would you pray with me?